let us worship God. This is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. Having these promises, let us draw near to the throne of grace with true hearts, in full assurance of faith. My voice shalt thou hear in the morning, O Lord. In the morning will I direct my prayer unto thee, and will look up. Let us pray. O Lord our God, we thank thee for all thy blessings of the year past, and for the certainty of thy grace and mercy in the year ahead. We thank Thee that Thou art closer to us than we are to ourselves, that Thy mercies are new every morning. Open our eyes that we may behold the wonders of Thy care. How gracious and good Thou art to us who so often cannot be good to ourselves. We thank Thee for Thy mercy. Bless us now as we give ourselves to Thee in word, thought, and deed, in Thy worship. In Christ's name, Amen. Our scripture is from Exodus 25, verses 10 through 22. The Ark and the Mercy Seat. Exodus 25, verses 10 through 22. And they shall make an ark of shittim wood. Two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof, and a cubit and a half the breadth thereof, and a cubit and a half the height thereof. And thou shalt overlay it with pure gold within and without, shalt thou overlay it, and shalt make upon it a crown of gold round about. And thou shalt cast four rings of gold for it, and put them in the four corners thereof, and two rings shall be in the one side of it, and two rings in the other side of it. And thou shalt make staves of shittim wood, and overlay them with gold. And thou shalt put the staves into the rings by the sides of the ark, that the ark may be borne with them. The staves shall be in the rings of the ark, they shall not be taken from them. And thou shalt put into the ark the testimony which I shall give thee. And thou shalt make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof, and a cubit and a half the breadth thereof. And thou shalt make two cherubims of gold of beaten work, shalt thou make them, and the two ends of the mercy seat. And make one cherub on the one side, and the other cherub on the other end, even of the mercy seat shall you make the cherubims on the two sides thereof. And the cherubims shall stretch forth their wings on high, covering the mercy seat with their wings, and their faces shall look one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall be the faces of the cherubims be. And thou shalt put the mercy seat above upon the ark, and in the ark thou shalt put the testimony that I shall give thee. And there I will meet with thee, and I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubims, which are upon the ark of the testimony, of all things which I will give thee in commandment unto the children of Israel. 
These verses deal with the ark or chest and the mercy seat. The ark is a chest and it can be understood very, very well as a kind of sacred safety deposit box for the covenant law. When the law was given in its entirety, it was to be deposited in the ark. Also, the two tablets of stone, each carrying a copy of the Ten Commandments. These were the originals of the contract between God and Israel. The mercy seat is, in the original Hebrew, a word which can be and sometimes is translated as cover. In a sense, that is correct but it limits the meaning very severely, almost to the point of altering it. Because the word, the same word, is used in the Old Testament in relationship to atonement, propitiation, or a covering to protect man. The law is in the ark or chest, and above it is the place where, according to verse 22, God meets with man. This was in the Holy of Holies. Common men could not enter into it, and even priestly access was severely limited. As a result, it does not mean a place of meeting in a personal sense, but to the fact that the God who gave the law is also the one whose grace gave the law and continues to give mercy and salvation in his sovereign grace and that the contract is there, and they have met in terms of the legal contract which is there in the ark. The word cubit had a different meaning then than now. As a result, our knowledge of the precise measurements is now uncertain. Originally, the cubit was the length from the elbow to the tip of the fingers, and it depended on whose elbow was being used and whose was regarded as the standard in the realm. The ark is the ark of the testimony or of the covenant. At the heart of the Holy of Holies, we have, as a result, the legal documents of the covenant placed within a chest. This ark was regarded as being equivalent to the very presence of God. When Israel crossed the river Jordan to enter into Canaan, the ark preceded the people. It was carried by the priests. In effect, this was a public witness to the presence of God leading the march. When Israel in the days of Eli went into battle against the Philistines, In imitation of what God had commanded at the entrance of Canaan, they carried the ark with them under the delusion that despite their apostasies, God would be present with them to give them victory. Instead, he gave them a crushing defeat. The evil present in Israel at that time was one common to history, Namely, to assume that form and ritual, however important, can supplant faith and knowledge 
Again and again, the Bible condemns this. For example, David in one of his Psalms, Psalm 40, verses 6 through 10, sees God's essential requirement before any ritual is the obedience of faith. He says, sacrifices and offerings, thou didst not desire, mine ear hast thou opened. Now that literally in the Hebrew reads, mine ear hast thou digged. The hard way, I was hard of hearing, I did not want to hear, but you dug my ear open. Burnt offering and sin offering hast thou not required. Then said I, Lo, I come in the volume of the book it is written of me. I delight to do thy will, O my God, yea, thy law is within my heart. I have preached righteousness in the great congregation. Lo, I have not refrained my lips, O Lord, thou knowest. I have not hid thy righteousness within my heart. I have declared thy faithfulness and thy salvation. I have not concealed thy loving kindness and thy truth from the great congregation. Man routinely places the right above that which it celebrates. For example communion above Christ's atonement on the cross, the form of baptism above the life, the new life that it signifies, the presence at worship above worship from within and in all our being and actions, and so on and on. The result is blasphemy. Thus, when David speaks against the sacrificial system, it is against any stress on ritual as sufficient in itself. He himself was faithful to the sacrificial system because he held to the primacy of righteousness or justice. The centrality and the holy of holies of the ark and the law witness against formalism. Moreover, when David says that God's justice or righteousness is central to his being, hidden in his heart, he tells us that even as the ark and its law is at the center of God's sanctuary, so too God's covenant law is at the center of his own being and should be at the center of ours. According to Hebrews 9, verse 4, the ark had besides the tables of the covenant, two other things, a golden vessel with manna and Aaron's rod that budded. Both were witnesses to the supernatural and providential power of God in the lives of his covenant people. The cherubim, or cherubims as it is sometimes given, as in our text, is the plural of cherub. And cherub has nothing to do with our modern notion of cherubs, little baby-like angelic creatures. They represented heavenly creatures who are near to God. They were here represented in gold and with their faces looking to the mercy seat. In Genesis 3, verses 24, 
the cherubim after the fall, barred the Garden of Eden and the Tree of Life from man. Their presence is imaged here, and it is in association with the covenant law and the ark, and with the mercy seat or propitiation. And it means that only in covenantal faithfulness to God can man be free from judgment. On the Day of Atonement, the high priest entered the Holy of Holies and he sprinkled blood on the mercy seat. According to Leviticus 16:14 through 16, and he shall take of the blood of the bullock and sprinkle it with his finger upon the mercy seat eastward. And before the mercy seat shall he sprinkle of the blood with his finger seven times. Then shall he kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring his blood within the veil. And do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bullock and sprinkle it upon the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. And he shall make an atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel and because of their transgressions and all their sins. And so shall he do for the tabernacle of the congregation that remaineth among them in the midst of their uncleanness. The point in this ritual was to establish a barrier between God and his broken law on the one hand and the people on the other. And the interesting fact that is rarely mentioned nowadays is that as he went and sprinkled the blood, it was in the shape of a cross. Scripture refers to the ark in various ways. And Jeremiah three sixteen and 17, it is called the throne of God, whereas David in 1 Chronicles 28, 2 calls it God's footstool. And David apparently has the same thought in mind in Psalm 99, 5 and 132, verse 7. A cloud of incense filled the Holy of Holies when the priest approached it, according to Leviticus 16, verse 13. In Ehler's words, and I quote, This expresses the fact that full communion between God and man is not to be realized, even though the medium of the atonement to be obtained by the Old Testament sacrificial institutions, that as it is said in Hebrews 9, 8, as yet the way to the heavenly sanctuary was not made manifest. The Kaphoreth rested on mercy seat on the ark, in which are the tables of the law, the testimony. This means that God sits enthroned in Israel on the ground of the covenant of law which he has made with Israel. The testimony is preserved in the ark as a treasure, a jewel. But with this goes a second consideration. While the law is certainly in the first place a testimony to the will of God toward his people, it is also a testimony against the sinful people, a continual record of accusation, so to speak, against their sin in the sight of the holy God. And now when the kapareth is over the tables, it is declared that God's grace, which provides an atonement or covering for the iniquity of the people, 
stands above his penal justice. End of quote. Well, there are two very strong declarations in this. First, the law of God is basic to biblical faith. If there is no regard for the law, there is no covenant. Second, man is in this covenant of God by his grace and by the blood of the atonement. In the atonement, we see the grace of God fully revealed in Christ's work on the cross. Atonement, covenant, and law are thus inseparable. The mercy seat is so important that the Holy of Holies in First Chronicles 28.11 is called the house or place of the mercy seat. The ark and the mercy seat are very closely tied together in this text and elsewhere. Grace and law are thus inseparably linked in the covenant. Revelation tells us that God's law even now judges the world to destroy those which destroy or corrupt the earth, according to Revelation 11.18. And then in the next verse we read, And the temple of God was opened in heaven. And there was seen in his temple the ark of his testament and voices and thunderings and an earthquake and great hail. An aspect of Adam's sin and his will to be his own God and lawmaker was and is the desire to restrict meaning to what man declares it to be. Each man seeks to make the world his world and to give the world the meaning he himself ordains. This means that any realm of meaning which transcends man is detested. True enough, philosophers routinely insist on some kind of meaning in the natural order but this represents their mind projecting its own logic onto the world. Modern philosophy is very deeply given to man-made meanings. Ironically, now it is turning on itself. And in deconstructionism, a writer is said not to know the real meaning of what he himself has written. It has to be interpreted by the professors. Of course, we've had this same kind of deconstruction in law. And the thesis is that the framers of the Constitution and the framers of any law, legislators, did not really know the meaning of the law. And therefore, the judges, the equivalent of the professors, must reinterpret its meaning. And ritualism is no different. The sacraments are routinely given very personal meanings with a disregard for God's ordained meaning. The personal experience is sought without regard to God's covenant law and grace and his work of atonement in Christ. So the meaning of any rite begins with God. And our understanding of what he has said and what he has done is our personal experience. 
This is why in the service of Passover, the youngest male child capable of speaking and understanding would ask, What mean ye by this service? The experience was to be in knowing the meaning and applying it in one's life. And this is why in terms of that Passover ritual, the early church had a chorus of small boys who recited the same line in the communion at the beginning of the service. What mean ye by this service? God-centered instruction was clearly stressed. In terms of this, verse 22 tells us that God from his throne commands his people. This is essential to the communion between God and man. In this verse, communion is tied to the law and to atonement. And this broken link must be restored. As a result of the whole of modernism with its subjectivism, its romanticism, People now seek the meaning of things pertaining to the faith and the meaning of the rituals of baptism, of communion, or anything else in what it means to me. That reverses God's order. What God declares it to mean must be the experience of understanding of an enlightenment that makes our being rejoice. Let us pray. Our Lord and our God, we give thanks unto thee for thy word. We thank thee that thy word is true, that thy word is altogether righteous or just, and that thy word must be basic to our experience. That it must color, govern, guide, shape our understanding, our thinking, our feeling, the whole of our lives. Make us joyful in thy word. And grant that it may always be a light upon our way to guide us all the days of our life. In Christ's name, amen. Are there any questions now with regard to our lesson? Yes. It seems that from what you're saying, there's an almost platonic element in the respect in which judges are held in contemporary society. Instead of a a philosopher king, we have a philosopher judge that uh, pretty much controls our... (laughs) Yes, a, a very good point. We have people who feel that the meaning comes not from God nor from the person if it's on the human level who speaks it but from themselves so the interpreters whether in the academy or in the courts have become the new philosopher kings and of course in the realm of the faith purely personal experience (laughs) 
a new kind of Platonism. They become the locale of meaning. Yes. Uh, at what period in this country did it really begin that men began to interpret the Constitution? Uh, apart Very from early. Very early. However, I think we can say it coincided with the rise of two things. One was experientialism in religion. Now, the Finney revival was a major break with orthodoxy in Christian history because what Finney said was that a revival within Christendom was not the work of God and of the Holy Spirit, but it was produced by technology, we might say, methodology. If men applied the right kind of techniques, they could produce infallible, infallibly revival in any community. They would thereby be commanding God and the Holy Spirit. Well, that put the priority with man. It meant that new meaning continually came out of one's experience. That type of thinking in a number of ways represented, well, romanticism and literature, which came into this country a little more tardily than in Europe. Romanticism in religion. It meant also experientialism and that, as Oliver Wendell Holmes later was to say, the law is not logic but experience. Well, uh, that was no improvement. Before that, the law was seen as human logic. Now it became human experience. In neither case was it referred to God. So, after the 1820s, this kind of thinking rapidly took over. There were evidences of it before. But after the 1820s, it began to predominate. Any other questions or comments? Yes. During the formation of the Constitution, some of the founding fathers expressed a concern about usurpation of power among the co what were going to become the co-equal branches of government, but I don't remember ever reading anything about a usurpation of God's power by government. Did any of them, to your knowledge, ever express any concern about that? Yes, they did by avoiding the word totally and Washington condemned it before they began, sovereign and sovereignty, because they felt that belonged only to God. And on the 50th anniversary, that was the point that John Quincy Adams, a liberal of his day, expressed shock about, that we had gone from a belief in the sovereignty of God alone to a belief in the sovereignty of states or of the Federal Union. And to him, that was a reversal, a revolution that turned the whole meaning of things upside down. Yes? Don't you think the collapse of some of the communist systems in Middle Europe will have a salutary effect on the Americans in the sense that government loses some of its sacredness? I hope so. 
I just read uh, yesterday Dr. Ivan Browning's commentary on how foolish Americans are to think that uh, all this represents a change in thinking. He doesn't feel it does. Now, perhaps he's overly cynical. I don't know. He says the real problem is hunger. And he said at the end of the harvest in Kiev, Russia, hunger was great because there was no food. And uh, he said this is true throughout the Central European countries. And he said hunger has driven people to rebelling and to the collapse of the various orders. And he believes that hunger is going to hit the whole of the known world in a very short time, within two or three years. Well, wouldn't that reduce the sacredness of government? Oh, yes, it is. It is, but it's not because they've grown in their thinking, but they've had uh, the horrors of mismanagement brought home to them. He uh, gives a frightening picture of the future, and it's hard to find fault with his analysis. At the same time, also, he calls attention to the growing water crisis, how in France the drought is so severe that the water supply of Paris is a month only. And it's still not raining, and nobody seems to be alarmed. They believe that the water will always be there. So there has been no step towards conservation. And among the Bretons in Brittany, they had a severe drought all summer with excessive heat and now excessive cold and continuing drought in an area which is normally quite wet. So... Apparently, it's a worldwide picture, according to Dr. Browning. That's God's way of uh, destroying the sacredness of man's planning, I think. Any other questions or comments? Yes. In the denomination that I grew up in, uh, there was a reaction in my generation to formalism. The problem was that uh, the uh, church has abandoned the forms rather than restore the meaning. It seems to... Uh, yes. First, uh, the forms become all important, and then because the forms are empty, they are abandoned. That has historically been the pattern. So uh, we are at... Uh, the point where the forms it's themselves have eroded. Well, if there are no further questions or comments, let us conclude with prayer. Our Father, we thank Thee that though the vision of man gives us only a bleak and grim outlook thou art on the throne it is thy judgments which are being executed 
And thy purpose in all these things is to destroy the pride and the evil of man and to bring forth thy righteousness, thy truth, and to deliver thy people and to further thy kingdom. Give us grace to walk day by day with our hearts fixed where our true joys are to be found, even in Christ Jesus, his kingdom and his word. Bless us this purpose. And now go in peace, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost bless you and keep you, guide and protect you, this day and always. Amen.